Well, today we've been talking about God's fulfillment, God's faithfulness, and so we're finally going to, in the text this morning, experience some of the fulfillment of the promises that we've looked at over the last three weeks. Uh, Several weeks ago, we saw God promise three things to Abram. Land, people, descendants, and blessing, and that through him the world, the nations, would be blessed. But the glaring elephant in the room that we've been addressing the last few weeks is that Abram didn't have a biological son. So two weeks ago, we saw him parade Eleazar, um, a member of his household before God, saying like, all right, here's my heir. And God says, nope, like, that's not it. Like, you're going to have a child, just you got to wait for it. And then last week, we saw another attempt to force God's plan into action, where Abram marries his wife's servant, Hagar, and he does have a biological son through her, Ishmael. But once again, we see God saying, like, nope, like, keep those eyes peeled. Promise, a child of promise is coming. So if you would pull out Bibles, let's jump right into things. We'll be looking at excerpts from Genesis 17 and 18. And so in those texts, we're going to see that promise of Abram's offspring once again foretold and then at long last fulfilled. So uh, I'm going to start by reading the first 14 verses of Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So some comments on on what we see going on here. Look at that first verse. So this starts setting the stage. This interaction is happening when Abraham was 99 years old. Let that sink in, right? It's taken us three weeks, which sometimes feels like a long time, to get from the promise to, you know, this this promised offspring, promised descendants to its fulfillment. But it took at least, at least 24 years for Abraham to see this fulfillment. 
He was 75 years old when he entered the land of Canaan, and I said a few weeks ago when we looked at Genesis chapter 12 that it is probable uh, that he had received that initial call, those verses 1 through 3 of Genesis 12, before they were even in the area of Haran, maybe back when they were in Ur. So it's potentially been longer than 24 years that he's been waiting. I mean, put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a minute. Right? Like the dude's 99 years old, and I'm sure that there have been seasons that he's doubted that this was ever going to happen. He's 99. Sarai would have been about 89. And I'm sure this was beginning to seem a little bit like a pipe dream. God, did I understand you correctly? You know, in, in our age of instant gratification, I imagine uh, I probably would have given up hope long ago. And we've seen these touch points in our passages where Abraham kind of presses in, like, you know, God, you, you still, you still, this still the plan? This still what's happening? En- encouraging God to follow through with what he's promised. But notice in the second half of verse 1 what God calls himself. El Shaddai. Right? The ESV is translating that for us. I'm God Almighty. God is a God of power. And so in this situation, I think it's, it's fitting that he's demonstrating, is there anything that is impossible for him? This barrenness of Sarai's womb is not something that either she or Abraham can overcome themselves. They can't control that, but God's saying, you know, with God, all things are possible. Trust. Wait. We see this passage continue with more of this covenantal language. Two weeks ago was Genesis 15, and we saw that unconditional covenant that God made with Abram, where God in the smoking torches is passing through those, you know, slaughtered animal parts while Abraham is sleeping. That was an unconditional. God was going to act regardless of how Abram moved, but this one is conditional. God's putting stipulations on Abram and his descendants that they're to walk blameless, they're to follow God's laws, and that there's a, there's a longevity to this covenant. Verse 7 tells us that it's going to be an everlasting covenant. Now, as we look at this covenant, a few things are happening here. First, we see that there's a name change. God changes his name from Abram, which just means, ESV thankfully puts little footnotes for us to help us understand that, which means exalted father to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Names are very important in the culture that Abraham lived in. And so this, this name changes is, again, another iteration of the promise that God is making back in Genesis 12, that Abraham would not only have a child, but that this child would lead to the formation of his own people, his own tribe, that kings would come out of this. It was going to be people of significance. You know, as we continue this morning, we're going to see this, this happen in a literal way with the birth of Isaac. But there's also a spiritual fulfillment that takes place here. The the New Testament calls those who follow Jesus Christ as the spiritual offspring of Abraham. This goes back to Genesis 12, 3, right? Through you all nations, not literal nation states, that's not what it means, but it's all peoples. It's kind of that uh, uh, language of, of revelation where every tribe, tongue, and nation will be blessed through Abraham. 
all nations, all ethnicities are brought into this spiritual lineage. So this covenant, there's conditions attached to it. Abraham's got to be obedient. He needs to, to walk and follow in terms of the covenant. Now think about this. This was, this was uh, I don't know, probably about 500, 600 years. No, that, not that many, 400 years, I guess it would have been, before the time of Moses. The Ten Commandments didn't exist. That whole law, the Torah, what we see in you know, the rest of the Pentateuch, uh, did not yet exist. So God is giving Abraham a sign of that covenant. The physical manifestation of obedience is what God shares next, circumcision. Abraham and his male offspring were to be circumcised. Now, some of you, many of you might know what circumcision is, but um, for those that don't, um, circumcision was a procedure where a portion of the foreskin of the penis was removed. It was a physical mark that was undertaken to demonstrate that you followed God that you were under the umbrella of his covenant. It was a sign meaning that you belonged to him. I think it's difficult for us to have a modern equivalent. I mean, circumcision still exists in our culture outside of Jewish culture, but it's not done for religious reasons anymore. So, so there are here two that kind of got me thinking about like, what it might look like in our modern, modern age. First is this, like, I know there are some fraternities that have, that take the habit of, uh, practice of taking a hot iron, right, and branding uh, their, their members with the Greek letters of whatever the fraternity is, right, because it's meant to be a physical mark. It's, you are now, you know, basically scarred, uh, but with that scar to highlight, this is my people. This is who I belong to. I, I mean, tattoos can be another example of that inclusion. Here, the second example that came to mind was, was from the world of sports. So a number of years ago, I went to a, a Steelers-Ravens game down in Baltimore. Steelers lost. I still remember that. I think. But I, I went there. I went to M&T Stadium with my Troy Palomalu jersey on. And it was a clear sign of what, where my allegiance lied. I mean, I was, you know, People, myself and others in our group, we were verbally insulted. We actually had like, they flung like nacho cheese on us. Um, it, was, it was a little, little intense, a little intimidating. It was a hostile environment. But for anyone who was there, there was no doubt where my commitment was, where my loyalty was as a football fan. That's kind of what circumcision was like. It showcased this attachment the males who were not circumcised, the males who refused it, look at the end of that, verse 14, that they're to be cut off from God's people. It's viewed as a violation of the covenant. Now, just in case there's anyone panicking right now about that, like circumcision is not required under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. This was one of those early struggles that the, uh, the, the new Christian community had. How much of that Mosaic law, how much of that do we need to observe as, as Christians? And, and Paul actually makes a link between this old covenant practice of circumcision and the new covenant practice of baptism. That's, that's a message for another day. I'm not going to get into that too much more. So before we move on, uh, I, I want you to look at verse 12 to the end of our section, because I think this is, this is fascinating. Who is supposed to get circumcised? 
we see the text say that it's Abraham's own flesh and blood, his descendants. But we also see servants. We see foreigners. All who were included in the household are included under the covenant. And so circumcision, this entry point, if you will, in this you know, Hebrew way of, of encountering God's covenant, the, the inclusion is not based upon racial purity. It is not based upon social hierarchy. Right? It's not that only those in the correct bloodline or those of a certain social status are to receive this mark. It shows that, that inclusion in the covenant of God, that every male member of his household was to display the sign. Now, I think this, is, this foreshadows what we see in the New Testament with Jesus, because Jesus brought great social upheaval, because he, he welcomed women, he welcomed Gentiles, he welcomed sinners, people of, of ill repute, into his, his gatherings, spending time with them, welcoming them, inviting them into the kingdom that he was initiating, that he was inaugurating. This is the language that we see of Paul in Galatians 3, 27 to 28, where he says, for as many of you as were baptized, again, note that sign of the new covenant, into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not meant to say that those things, those demarcations didn't continue to exist. They did. There were still men and women. There were still Jewish and Gentile. There were some who were free and those who were slave. But the point that, that Paul is making is those statuses no longer have any indication of your accessibility into the kingdom of God. So way, way back, 2,000 years before Paul would have written those words, we see foreshadowing this evidence of the, the radically inclusive nature of God's kingdom. And I think it's an important reminder for us because, you know, the, the, the Hebrew people in the time of Jesus had this ethnocentricity. They thought, they knew they were God's chosen people and kind of hoarded that a little bit as, as opposed to being out, sharing that, welcoming others in, like we see in, in Genesis 12.3. All right, let, let's, let's keep moving on. Um, let's look at Genesis 17. I'm sorry, I'm, um, I got a lot of text today. Genesis 17, 25 to 21. God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I'll bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So in this text, we see another name change. I have to be honest, I have no idea the difference. I tried to do a little research between these. Sarai and Sarah. Sarah seems to be just two versions of uh, the same word, which means princess is what it means in Hebrew. They're just spelled differently. 
But what's important here of what we see God sharing is that he is the one. He called himself El Shaddai, God Almighty earlier. He is the one who is powerful enough to overcome the barren womb. Sarah is 90. 89 maybe would be 90 by the time the child is born. Well past the age of childbirth. And in the next chapter, we'll see that implicit explanation made explicit. So Abraham, you know, this all sounds incredulous to him, and so he responds with laughter. He's basically saying, God, that's too big. There's no way that Sarah will have a child. Look here, I'm good. I've got Ishmael. It's fine. But God's clear, like, no. Sarah will have a child, and his name will be Isaac. Again, if you're reading the ESV, you'll see there in verse 17 a footnote, and it says that Isaac's name means he laughs. Keep that in mind. That's really, this is really important in these chapters that we are reading. It's a theme as we look at this text because this theme of laughter comes up several times. In this instance, we see Abraham laughing, but it's a laughter of unbelief. He, he doesn't think God can or will do what God has promised to do. It's a negative. But God turns that laughter, that symbol of unbelief, to make it a positive in the name of Abraham's future son, Isaac. And God's saying, you know, in a year's time, you'll have this child. All right, I'm going to skip the next section, Genesis 17, 22 to 27. It's just describing Abraham going out and circumcising his household. But we'll pick up at the start of Genesis 18. Verses 1 through 15. You'll see a lot of similarities between the story and what we just read. There they are, knocking those walls down in Jericho. All right, Genesis 18, 1 to 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. 
And there's, a, there's a lot going on in this passage. I'm going to try to hit some of the themes. Let's start with the three men. Verse 2, it describes visitors who came to Abraham. The text is not clear, explicitly clear, of the identity on these visitors, but we can glean some information from it. For starters, Abraham's behavior, he runs towards them. This would have been a social faux pas. I've talked about this before when we've talked about the parable of the prodigal son, uh, that someone of his status to run would, would have been frowned upon, kind of heaping shame upon himself. It's beneath his status to behave in that way. So the fact that he runs means that Abraham is showing, he's recognizing these figures as important. Then we see that he bows down before them, indicating that they are worthy of his respect. And then, verse, then in verse 3, he says, O Lord. Now this word in Hebrew is Adonai. Not to be confused with Adonai, which is the more generic term for Lord or Master, but Adonai was usually reserved for association with God. So here's the big question. Abraham seems to acknowledge these three men as divine beings, if not God himself, and there are three of them. A lot of scholars think that this may have been intended to be a revelation of the Trinity, that God is both one being but yet three persons. And we see that. We, we see these kind of echoes of this in, in the Old Testament. You think the creation narrative, right? God the Father speaks. The Son is the word spoken, and the Holy Spirit is hovering over the deep, ready to, to execute that action. So Abraham knows that he is entertaining the Lord, or at least, at the very least, a representative of the Lord. So he runs and Sarah prepares a feast for them. And I, I think, again, there's a very intentional contrast in this text between this, this hospitality. Right? He said he was going to make you know, just a small morsel, but he prepares a feast for these three men. And I think it's supposed to contrast the hospitality of Abraham and Sarah compared to the lack of hospitality that is shown in the next few chapters when we come to Sodom and Gomorrah, which we're not going to be addressing. So after they ate... These three men restate the same promises given to Abraham a little bit ago, that Sarah would have a child within the next 12 months. And notice verse 11 makes that explicit statement that I referenced earlier, right? Sarah was old, and it said, quote, the way of women had ceased to be with her. Uh, they, they didn't have our medical understanding, but they knew the finality of menopause when it happened. We shouldn't have chronological snobbery that it's like, no, they were all dumb back then. They didn't know how things worked. They had, a, they had a better understanding than we often give them credit for. Here again, we see laughter in Sarah's response, just like Abraham. She's finding it incredulous, like that this would actually happen. But what's different here is we see that she, she's kind of chastised by God for it. You know, we didn't see any of these terse replies given towards Abraham. Now, here's my suspicion, because uh, again, the text doesn't make it explicit. My suspicion here is not that she is in trouble for laughing, and, and I think this is a similar type of laugh, of the laughter of unbelief that Abraham had earlier. I don't think the issue is that she was laughed. I think the issue is that she denied her laughter. She was trying to preserve her image, preserve her dignity. It says that she was afraid of what these men would think. I think what this shows, what this reveals to us is that God can be very gracious and he can be very patient in our, with our unbelief. 
Our unbelief is not a, an automatic rejection. You have that cry of the, uh, the, the father that Jesus has, you know, healing his son. Nothing's impossible for those who believe. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief, right? God, God is, Jesus is patient with our unbelief. But what God, I think, is calling her out for is her duplicity in denying it. All right, I want to finish this story. I want to bring it to fulfillment briefly. Genesis, this is 21. We've skipped all of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. This is, sorry, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. He laughs. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And that's not a laughing at her, a laughing with her. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Notice again that theme of laughter. What God has taken is that negative, that laughter of unbelief of Abraham in chapter 17, Sarah in chapter 18, and has turned it into a laughter of happiness, of joy. So on that note, I, wanna, I have three themes I want us to consider this morning. Like, What's some take-home? What do we learn about God and ourselves in the midst of these texts for our everyday lives? The first is this, and this is what we've been talking about a lot this morning already through worship and, and our, our, what Sarah shared, what I've shared, what Bryce has shared, that God's faithful. He is faithful in fulfilling his promises. There was at least a 25-year gap between the time that God first promised Abraham a child until Isaac was finally born. That is a long time. I mean, that's over half my lifetime. That is more than some of the lifetimes of you here in this room. Now, there were touch points along the way. God's restating. He's reinforcing this promise to Abraham. But I think we need this reminder in, in our consumerist culture of gratification. Like we, don't, we don't like to wait. We don't want to wait in traffic. We don't want to wait for our packages. You know, as if two-day prime shipping was not enough. Amazon has moved to next day, and actually I've seen some that is like same day if you early order early enough. But there are seasons that we must go through where we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And it might never, it might seem like resolution is ever going to come. But we need to remember that passages show us that God is faithful and he is intentional with his time. Second Peter says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises the way that some count slowness. I like Gandalf's quote in Lord of the Rings, right? A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. God will fulfill his promises on his timeline. And sometimes we need to be reminded to wait and be patient. Second is that nothing is too difficult for God. 
God was able to miraculously, I mean, this was a miracle to provide for this birth of Isaac in a barren womb well past menopause. There is not a thing that God cannot do. Now, there might be situations in life where, you you know, you're looking at it and you don't see a way out. You can't fathom how God could possibly move and redeem this experience. But don't doubt. Hold fast to the power of God. He calls himself, he names himself El Shaddai, a nickname for himself, God Almighty. So we sang this morning, he can make a way when there is no way. Finally, I love the wordplay and theme of laughter in these passages. God is taking that laughter of Abraham and Sarah, the laughter that was a sign of their unbelief, and he's turning it into this gleeful laughter of joy, taking something that was negative and turning it and making it positive. And so I just want to encourage you that there might be difficult seasons in your life. Maybe you're going through one now. God will redeem them, whether we see that on this side of paradise or not. That's, I can't tell you that that's going to happen. It's not a formula. But God will bring redemption. He, will, he, he uses these opportunities for us to grow. I, some of you might remember our dear sister, Mia Patterson. She passed away late in 2020 from COVID, uh, but she used to always say that God takes your test and turns it into a testimony, and he takes your mess and makes it your message. Throughout Scripture, we see these themes of the negative being turned into the positive, right? Through the power, through the perspective of the Lord, right? Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That God's the one that takes our mourning and turns it into dancing. That God uses all things, whether they be good or bad, to work for the good, not the comfort, but the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God is in the business of taking broken things and restoring them for our good and his glory. And so this morning we saw finally this fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And so next week, just to foreshadow this a little bit, next week we're going to see him put Abraham to the ultimate test of his faithfulness to God. And there's, there's a, I mean, it's, you know, the, the sacrifice of Isaac. It's a, it's a very complex, loaded passage that we're going to look at. So, until then, here's some questions, and I, want, I use them for those three themes for you to think about. I'll post them this week. Think through your experience, your life. Is there something that, has, that you've been waiting a long time for God to fulfill? What does it look like? How do you hold on to hope when it feels like he delays? Again, this, isn't, uh, this is taken a little bit out of context, per se, but, you know, I, I often share about what a passage that um, uh, John 6 means. You know, Jesus is preaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and people are like, this is weird. We're out of here. And, and Jesus says to Peter, are you going you gonna to leave too? Peter's response is like, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of, of life. You know, that's like in seasons of difficulty for me that I know has been a, a, a source of hope. Um, where else am I going to go? Like, this is, this is good, and, and, and Jesus is, this isn't good. Jesus is good, even if this doesn't. So, thinking about that. Second is this, do you believe that God is El Shaddai, God Almighty? Are there limits that you put on the power of God? 
We say that God is all-powerful. We profess that with our lips, but I think that deep down there are times where we doubt it. Maybe we're not doubting that he's capable of it, maybe doubting his willingness to do it. That's another kind of uh, matrix to think through, but I think there's also times where we just say, oh, this is too big. God can't do it. God can't destroy the walls of a fortified city just by marching around it and uh, making a lot of noise. Glad these walls didn't fall down. So thinking about that, are there places where you're kind of, uh, uh, Craig Groeschel calls it functional atheism. Right? That we're, we say we're a Christian, but we're kind of living like we're an atheist. That's one of those ways we do. Is, uh, is, there, is there a test that's become a testimony or a mess that's become a message? What is a negative situation in your life in the past that God has turned into a positive for your good and his glory? And those, those things are great opportunities to be able to share and communicate what God has been doing. They're testimonies that we can share with our neighbors, pointing to the goodness of God. All right, I'm, I'm going to pray and be quiet, and we'll, we'll finish up. Lord, uh, thank you so much for uh, th- your word that reveals that we are not alone in, in this life experience, that uh, the ways in which Abraham or Sarah or others have responded in the text are probably the ways that we would have responded. Uh, responding out of unbelief, responding by trying to force your hand, uh, responding in, in, in ways that um, don't always align with the way we ought to live. So God, in these, these times, I am so grateful for the grace of Jesus Christ that has not only turned our mourning into dancing, but has shown us grace that when we fall flat on our faces, when we aren't living up to what we ought to, we need do no more than look to him as our perfect, spotless righteousness. Lord, remind us of these things as we journey through this path of life with every twist and turn, with every hill and valley, knowing that you're with us and you're working whether we see it or not. In Christ's name, amen.